May I also add my wishes for a very happy new year to all of you and to say how excited I am to be starting out a whole new decade together. Uh, here in the life of Christ Church, uh, God brings so many wonderful people from so many different backgrounds. And whether you are a longtime member, maybe one of that uh, group of 200 that were there at the very beginning in the adventure that is Christ Church, uh, or are perhaps somebody walking in for the very first time today, uh, my prayer and hope is that this place will be a circle of spiritual nurture and that this will be a year in which your relationship with Jesus Christ becomes even more dear to you and even more of a powerful radiating center for your life. Uh, we are going to be exploring together during this month a very famous story of the Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at it from a number of angles, week in and week out. It's a story that we find in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And you may find it helpful to have your Bibles open, to be reading along uh, as we look together at this uh, scripture text, as we study one of the greatest stories of all time. Uh, what has come to be known by uh, many generations of Christians as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, as some of you probably know, the word prodigal literally means wasteful. And Bible editors have entitled this particular parable. Remember, Jesus did not supply the title, nor did any of the apostles supply a title for these various stories Jesus told. But the editors that followed on and printed the Bibles did supply the title, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, as if it was basically a morality tale about a wasteful kid. That is a little bit like saying that Star Wars is basically a story about crashing spaceships, or that Gone with the Wind is a fundamentally a story about a house that burned. Yes, those things happen uh, in the storylines. Yes, in Star Wars, spaceships crash, and in the Gone with the Wind saga, there is a house that burns along with Atlanta. And it is true that in the story that Jesus tells, there is a child that is wasteful in a variety of ways that we'll explore together. But the story is about something so much greater than that. It is about a... A, a web of relationships and values. It is about the fundamental nature of life itself. And, and for that reason, I'm just excited to explore in depth together the massive meaning of this amazing story of Jesus. Because it tells us about the, the human condition at its core. Almost everything we really need to know about human beings and, and why things go wrong for us is described in this story. And it tells us even more importantly about the massive heart of God who meets us in our condition. And as I'm going to be trying to unpack in these weeks to come, it also reveals for us something about four critical seasons of the soul. Uh, eras of life, movements of ourselves that we either make or fail to make, and why that motion, that season, is so important. And the first of those seasons is what I have titled here today, simply called the autumn of the soul, the season of release. 
And to give you a visual for this, I want you to picture a massive, beautiful tree in the autumn that releases its leaves so that new life can be born. Think about that image as we go to the beginning of the story as Jesus tells it. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. My own sons were home for Christmas this year. We have three boys, 27, 23, and 20. They were all in the house along with a a whole passel of their friends. It was a raucous, riotous, wonderful time. We saw our snack cabinet stripped bare. It was a delightful time. They stayed up till all hours of the night playing games together. And as any of you who are parents will readily understand, there were conversations about money about how my money could become their money. (laughs) And I will tell you that there were transfers of resources that occurred on numerous occasions uh, during that Christmas and New Year's holiday. That was okay by Amy and by me, however. Uh, As any loving parent knows, you sort of want your kids to thrive. You're thrilled, actually, at the opportunity to help grease the skids for them a little bit, to make sure they've got sufficient money for school and for expenses and for some of their social life anyway. it, It doesn't hurt so much to give away a little cash so that your kids might thrive. The story that Jesus tells us here in this interaction between the father and the son is not a story like that. In fact, the people in the first century listening to Jesus tell this story for the very first time would have known how not normal this particular exchange going on in the story really was. The son in the story here is not asking his father for pocket change. He is asking for his share of the estate. And in a world before stocks and bonds and Bitcoin and a massive consumer product industry, the word estate literally meant land. It meant real estate. In fact, that's kind of where we get the term real estate. It is from this primary understanding of what an estate was. According to ancient Jewish tradition, when a father had two sons and he passed away, two-thirds of the land would be given to his eldest son and one-third of the land to the younger son. And by asking for his share of the estate, as you probably have heard in previous explications of this parable, the younger son is effectively saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I really wish you were dead. I'm ready now to have what I believe is coming my way. Now, we know from other historical records that there were actually times when a father, even before he died, would partition his property. He would allocate sections of the property to the different sons in the family. By law, however, he always retained use of the entirety of the land. He always retained the proceeds that would come from the harvesting of the land. And, and, and that was simply because a family's long-term economic vitality and its uh, social standing was intimately tied in ancient times to land. 
It was how you measured stature and wealth and hope and ability to weather the circumstances of life was by how much land you had as a family. Think how much conflict still arises today in the Middle East around struggles over land. Jesus tells us that not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And I want you to pay attention to that particular phrase. He got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And we're going to come back and really unpack that idea next week. But what I want to say to you, invite you to, is to, to resolve with me a simple puzzle that's there in those words. Because in a world where all you have, or all he had, is shorthand for real estate, how is it that this kid takes all he had and goes traveling with it? Did he somehow get his shoulder underneath the property and go a-walking? No, the only way he goes away with all he had is if he has converted the property to cash. He has shrunk the family's estate. He has shrunk the the future earning prospects of his dad. He has shrunk the social standing of his family by at least 33%. And given the uh, attitude that other people would have had about this transaction and what was going on in that family, he has shrunk the value and the status of his family by more than 33%. He has said, in effect, if you will not do me the courtesy of dying, old man, then at least be willing to live on a third less than you have so that I can do what I want. And as Jesus says, in effect, doing what he wants involves going to Vegas and losing everything. Have you ever wondered how people remembered the stories of Jesus? How it was that Jesus told these stories and then the stories somehow were preserved in people's memories for a few decades before they were written down. Have you ever wondered how they remembered? It's not that complicated. It is because his stories were not dull. (laughs) They were incredibly provocative, disturbing, upsetting, social order Uh, disrupting kinds of stories. And in all likelihood, the people who were first listening to Jesus tell this tale would have at this moment started to murmur and maybe even argue amongst themselves, what kind of a kid does this? Some would be saying. What kind of a kid does this to his dad and to his family? What kind of a father allows the kid to do this? Where the heck is the older brother in this story? Why isn't he in here grabbing his younger brother by the lapels and shaking him to his senses? This was a profoundly upsetting story Jesus was telling. For good or for ill, Jewish society was built on the unquestioned authority of patriarchs and on the unquestionable value of land. Dads ruled the roost, kids waited their turn, property was everything. Do you see how in this story, we're seeing the radical disruption of the very foundations of Jewish society being described? So if you 
are the father in this story. And I want to invite you to put yourself in that position. Imagine you are the dad in the story. How's your day going? Is this a good day? No, this is a very bad day. I'm imagining his response, of course. It's not explicitly here in the text. But human nature being what it is, at least if this was a human father we're talking about, we won't have a hard time figuring out what this must have felt like. Your kid has basically just communicated to you that he doesn't give a whit about you. You have raised this child. You held him in your arms. You fed him. You protected him. You provided for him. You took delight in him. You trained him. You got him involved in the work of the family. And at the very moment when he should most be getting it and, 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 and imitating and starting to emulate your own way of being in the world, he basically communicates that you mean nothing, that he wishes you were dead, that he's willing to, 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 to savage everything that you have built up over the years. This kid is displaying such appalling judgment and such bad character and such ill will towards you and the rest of the family. It has to be just ravaging your heart. And you've got very good reason to think that this kid of yours is going to make huge, wasteful mistakes in the days ahead that will be profoundly costly to him and to you, and you are right about this. And your eldest son, and I assume the wife, aren't even talking to you. We don't hear anything from them at this particular point. And your neighbors are gossiping, and if there were social media in those days posting about what an idiot you are as a father and what a threat you're unleashing to the entire social fabric of the community by the choices that you're making, by what's going on in your family. You are the talk of the town, but not in a good way. If you are a father in the story, then this is a painful, lonely, humiliating agonizing, fearful time. Jesus does not tell dull stories, nor does he tell irrelevant ones. Jesus wants us to better understand the human condition. And he wants us to understand even more deeply the heart of God that meets us in our condition. And so while it is not the main point of this parable, and we will return again and again to the main point in the days ahead, more on that, but one of the reasons I suspect that Jesus tells this story the particular way that he does is to illustrate directly or indirectly just how familiar God is with what we are calling in this series the season of release. There comes a time in our lives, and for those of us who have lives that have gone on for a while, there come many such times when we have to let go of someone or something that we have cherished. There are these seasons of life where at least the invitation is there to make a decision about whether we will hold on to 
or release someone or something that is beloved to us. I was in uh, my men's small group on Friday morning at the corner bakery over in Hinsdale and we were having a great conversation and we finished our Bible study and we were in that time when we share prayer requests and one of the guys uh, got quite tender and he gave me permission to share this story with you. He was tender, he invited us to pray because a big transition was happening in his family. It seems that his wonderful college-aged daughter is going away for a semester abroad over the big pond. And it was clear that uh, for, to the rest of us that this was a great thing, how wonderful for the daughter, but it was not such a great thing for the dad. He was worried, he was concerned. He said, you know, I've always been able to be in touch with her. If anything goes wrong, I'm just an hour or so away from her. I can always get there in time to help her. I can track her on, my, on the Find My Friends app on my phone. I will know where she is overseas, but if something happens to her, and it could, there are not always great people everywhere in the world. There could be people that take advantage of her. She's young, she's naive. If something happens to her, I will not be able to get there in time to help. And it is going to be very hard to let go. And everybody in the circle, all of us who are parents, we got it. We got it. We know things do happen sometimes to people who travel. I was away uh, with my family uh, last week. Uh, we were in the Florida Keys, and I went scuba diving. I've done this um, multiple times in my life. Um, it is a, always a joyful, fun experience. And so I'm swimming through this coral reef, through the Florida Keys, and it is just spectacular. I'm floating through space. It's like being Superman underwater. And there are all these magnificent multicolored uh, fish, and, and there's this beautiful coral there, and I'm looking ahead of me, and there's the figure of one of my kids and his, his girlfriend who's with us on this particular trip, and they're just gliding through the water, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is awesome. I could do this forever. I want to do this a lot more in the coming years than I've even done in the past. Ten minutes later, I'm back on the boat and I am coughing up liquid out of my lungs. I have nearly suffocated and drowned under the water because I had not been skin diving since my heart attack and I did not know that the nature of my system now is subject to something called immersive pulmonary edema, where my lungs don't function properly and they fill up with fluid. And I talked to my brother, the surgeon, on the phone, and he said to me, Dan, you're not going to be doing any more scuba diving. You're going to need to learn to let that go. Every day, in some way, many of us are confronting the moment. That moment when we suddenly realize the thing that we've held on to, the thing we've enjoyed, the thing we've cherished and managed and gained value from is something that maybe it's time to release. Think about how many circumstances occasion that kind of a moment. Uh, we didn't get into that school or onto that team that we wanted so badly, uh, that cherished person in our life, 
has drifted away or has actually died. Uh, the, the relationship or the marriage that we have so valued is now over. The kids have moved on. The job is gone. Our body won't let this happen, won't let us do that particular thing anymore. It's, it, it, we're, it's time to sell the house. Our kids are saying you need to stop driving. The, that person whose best interest you've, you've worked so hard to manage or protect is now out there beyond your control someplace. And the well-laid plans or the dreams that you had, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, and you're suddenly left in this position, standing like the father in the parable at the door or at the gate, watching as that thing, beloved, walks away down the driveway and disappears over the hill. For all of us, there come, maybe for you right now, there come this moment when you're challenged to either try and hold on more tightly or to release. And I think that the feelings of loss or of anger or of anxiety that kick up in these moments can be some of the most overwhelming emotions of our lives. I don't think there's any spiritual muscle <laughs> that in a sense is harder to exercise than the, than the muscles of, of letting go, the muscles of releasing something or somebody beloved when you know the risks when, when you actually feel that they are not ready or that you are not ready, when it, it seems like there's so much more potential if things stay the way they have been or when it leaves a hole in your heart to see these things changing, when you believe that you may be right and you probably are right, how do you do it? How do you let go? How did the Father do it? Given all he was losing in the moment, how did he do it? And more extensively, how does God keep on doing this? Because if we read the scriptures, we know that this is actually something he does again and again. How does he release Adam and Eve from this intimate relationship they've enjoyed and allow them to go on their way and make the choices they do? How does God continue to watch the children of Israel who he has blessed and provided for in so many ways continue to go wayward and make these awful choices that, that they do and turn on him and curse him in a sense by their choices and actions the way he does. How does Jesus let the rich young ruler who the scriptures say he loved, Jesus loved this young man who was who was so close to the kingdom of God, but when he finally received the challenge of Jesus to, to surrender further for the sake of that kingdom, the young man turned on his heel and walked down the driveway and Jesus let him go. How did Jesus do that when he loved this guy? How did Jesus let the promising, zealous, young disciple Judas go, knowing what Judas was going to do? How did Jesus release all of the glories of heaven itself and take the form of human flesh and that of a servant in human flesh and that of a crucified one 
How did he do this? How did he release his divine prerogatives the way he did? How did Jesus, when they hung him on a cross, when they did him so wrong, when they were so wrong about him, how did Jesus release the right to get even? Release the right to seek his own comfort and safety above all else. How does God keep letting go? (laughs) Renowned advice columnist Ann Landers, some of you will know her name, once wrote this. Some people believe holding on and hanging in there are signs of great strength. And I will quickly add, they can be. They often are. It is one of the greatest forms of strength we need to exercise at certain moments in our lives. We need to hold on and hang in there in many, many seasons of our life. However, says Landers, there are times when it takes much more strength to know when to let go and then to do it. Can I hear an amen about that? Right? That's true. There are a variety of reasons that God may call us to a season of release. And and we have to evaluate and we have to discern and the Holy Spirit helps us with this and the counsel of good friends helps us with this and the testimony of the scripture gives us guidance on some of this but it will take some discernment to know whether this is one of those moments when I'm meant to hang on or whether I'm meant to to release. But there are some reasons sometimes to do that letting go. Sometimes we need to let uh, go in order to let others fly. Uh, Sometimes we have to let go because without our letting go, others cannot become what they need to become and what God means for them to become. I know when I left the United States back when I was 22, I went off to Belfast, Northern Ireland. I, had le- I left behind an Ivy League school and went to a inner city war zone. It was a place of tremendous conflict and turmoil and bombings and shootings and riots and just uh, tr- tremendously terrible uh, conditions at that particular moment. And this was not exactly what my parents had in mind for me. It was not what my grandmother for sure had in mind for me. She immediately went to work and researched the cost of bulletproof vests. And, and when I, a year later, involved in that same location, I decided I was going to stay one year more and I was going to go to theological seminary because I'd gotten a vision for what pastoral ministry looked like my grandmother began to research business school applications in hopes of dissuading me. But my family did not stop me. They did not constrain me. They did an enormously courageous thing, actually, and I was the oldest. I was the first one going off like this. And and they released their hold on me. And because they did, what I learned and the ways that I grew in Belfast and, and, and the, the learnings I developed in life and about pastoral ministry allowed me to take wing in a way I never would. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today had my family not done that. I would never have so fully flown had they not let me in this deep way leave home. 
Other times, I think, we need to let go in order to let others fail. And that may sound strange to you, but that too is one of the reasons to let go, to let other people make mistakes. In his wonderful book, Necessary Endings, Dr. Henry Cloud observes that many of us hold on to people for too long, trying to protect or manage their lives when it ends up hurting us and them. Cloud writes, loyalty is important. Loyalty is one of the most important character traits that we can have, but loyal love does not mean infinite or misplaced responsibility for another's life. Nor does it mean that one forever puts up with mistreatment out of inappropriate loyalty. There is a difference, Cloud says, between helping someone who is disabled or otherwise infirm versus helping someone who is resisting growing up and taking care of what every adult or child for that matter has to be responsible for, which is namely him or herself. That's not loyalty. When you overprotect somebody who's not taking responsibility for themselves. And in no area is a willingness to let go. Harder, I found, as a pastor watching these things, or more important, actually, than where there's a loved one involved in addiction. Cloud says that when a spouse says to an alcoholic, you need to go to AA, as sensible as that sounds, that is obviously not true. Why? Because the addict feels no need to do that. They do not feel a need to go to AA. But when that spouse says, I am moving out, and I may be open to getting back together when you are getting treatment, then all of a sudden the addict starts to feel a new need. The addict starts to think, I need to get some help or I am going to lose my marriage. The same is true with other problematic behaviors of people who don't seem to take uh, feedback or ownership of themselves, the need to, 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 to do and to drive them uh, to do something different than they have been doing has to be transferred from us to them. Cloud concludes, a plan that has hope, a plan for the relationship that has hope is one that limits your exposure to the foolish person's issues and forces him to feel the consequences of his performance so that he might have hope of waking up and changing. Maybe part of the reason why the father let the son leave the house was because the kid in the house was wreaking havoc. He was wrecking the life for mom. And for his brother, his, just his bad behavior. You know, it just shouldn't have been put up with any longer. And he needed to be pushed into a situation where he was going to experience for himself the full consequences of who he was in the hope that that might lead to some kind of change. 
I wonder, would the younger son in Jesus' story ever have truly come home? Would he have ever actually recognized it as home had he not been permitted to go to the distant country and to fail so miserably there? We live in a nation today where being a helicopter, bulldozer, tow truck parent, spouse, or boss has become the definition of being loyal or loving too often. We've lost a sense of the, uh, of the fine line between perseverance and care and overindulgence in somebody else's irresponsibility. And, 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 and ultimately, we need to be, rethink this, I think. We need to ponder what love really looks like. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, who is it that we need to let go of now in order that they might fly? And who is it that we may need to release right now in order that they might fail, hopefully forward? Who is that in our lives? Let me close by observing that there's also one additional reason why God may be calling you or seeking to move you into a season of release right now. God knows that in addition to, to the motive of flying and of failing, that sometimes we need to let go in order to be free ourselves. In order that we might be free ourselves. In one of his most famous songs, the rock artist Sting says, if you love somebody, set them free. Well, here's the truth. God loves you. Paul says, for freedom, he has set you free. God loves you. He wants you to be free. He cares a lot about your freedom. Yes, he has bound you to certain covenants and certain commitments out of that love that he has for you. He has called you to run with perseverance the race that he has marked out for you because he knows the joy that lies on the other side, the character that forms in the process of perseverance. There's lots of scripture around this, that perseverance must uh, finish its work that we might be mature and complete and not lacking in anything, says the Apostle James, God has called you to, to be somebody who is not a quitter in a world where people quickly let go of things, sometimes out of selfishness and lack of fiber. God has called you to be strong in these ways and courageous, but do not forget his ultimate goal is freedom. His ultimate desire for you is the fullness of life and the flourishing of the garden. And in numerous biblical passages, God makes it clear that he does not want us to live enslaved and burdened lives. Think how much of the Old Testament narrative is about trying to free people from slavery. How Jesus says, come unto me, that you might no longer be so burdened. God wants us to know the truth that we might be set free. Jesus even says that. You will know the truth. If you are my disciple, if you obey my teaching, you will know the truth and it will set you free. John chapter 8 and verse 32. So some of us may need right now to release someone or something 
for the sake of our own freedom. We may need to release things and people from our need to be a certain way now. Because God is not done with them yet. We may need to let go and just let God do what he's going to do. Some of us may need to to be released and to release ourselves from the need to be celebrated, appreciated, encouraged for all of the great stuff we're doing. I'm very prone to this myself, as my wife could tell you. I'm always insecurely looking for that pat on the back. Some of that can be a form of slavery, actually. Some of us need to release that and just trust that the Father in heaven sees We're not meant to do our good deeds, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for the praise of men and women, but to trust the Father who sees. He knows the heart that we're bringing, the effort that we're bringing to things. We may need to be released from that bondage of being celebrated. Some of us may need to release our requirement that the blessings that we've known in the past must be the things that define our future. We may need to release ourselves from the notion that it always has to be this way. Maybe God has another way to bless you, a different way, a better way even, than you've known in the past. Maybe we need to let go of the requirement that it look the way we've known before. All of this, I think, is part of the pathway to the freedom that God wants for us to have. I like the way Brazilian novelist Paulo Coelho puts it in one of his books. He says, closing cycles, shutting doors, ending chapters, whatever name we give it, what matters is to leave in the past moments of life that have finished, that have finished. If you want to have a happier new year, it's important to let certain things go. That was last year. Let them go. Release them. Cut loose, says Coelho. Don't expect to get anything back. Don't expect recognition for your efforts. Don't expect your genius to be discovered or your love to be understood. In other words, be more like the Father in the parable Jesus tells. Because he is like this. This is how he lets go. Everything in Jewish society would have said to that parent, clench, control, command that kid to do your will. Yet, how freely he lets go of that season in his family's household. How freely he continues to love this child who is not mature enough yet to know what an amazing parent he has. In fact, this story should not be called the parable of the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the amazing father. But he's not mature enough to understand this and to love the father as he's worthy of love. How freely the father lets go and waits at the gate for his beloved's return. More on that next week. Would you pray with me?
Oh, loving Father, we thank you that this is not just a story, but is actually the truth about the way we are and the way that you love us. Lord, I don't know what season each of the precious people listening to me right now may be passing through, but I know that you do. If there is anyone within the sound of my voice who needs to let someone go so that they might fly, or who needs to release someone in the hopes that they will fail forward, please make that clear to them through the touch of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember how much you long to see us live lives that are not fettered but free. And having met you today, enable us, we pray, to go from this place more equipped to live and to love and to serve more freely than when we came. For this we pray in the precious name of Jesus, your faithful son. And all God's people said, amen.